the National Archives podcast series. Writer of the Month, Andrew Lowney on researching and writing Starling's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess. This talk was recorded on the 18th of May, 2016 at the National Archives, Q. Starling's Englishman. Uh, people say, why did you choose to do a book on Guy Burgess? I can understand why you should do a book on Guy Bucken, uh, John Buchan. You are so, you know, so near to him in character. He's a very sort of boring door Scotsman. Um, but uh, what have you got in common with Guy Burgess, who was gay and who was a communist, who was intelligent, who was charming? Um, and I always point them to this picture on the cover, and I say we shared the same uh, hairstyle. Um, <laughs> Some of the, the background to that picture is quite interesting. This is a book that I, actually, I started writing in 1985. Uh, I did other things in between, including several other books, uh, and um, only really came back to it if, uh, about two years ago. But in the course of those 30 years, I uh, clearly interviewed a lot of people. And one of the first people I interviewed was a man called Stephen Runciman, who'd been Burgess's tutor at Cambridge. And Runciman claimed to have hardly known Burgess at all. So I went away thinking that was that. that, was that. Then about two years ago, I was by, through my publishing job, I was at the Runciman home because I'd become agent to the estate. And his niece, hearing that I was doing a book on Burgess, said, you must come up and look at the photo album upstairs. We've got lots of pictures of Guy Burgess because my uncle and he were lovers for three years. And this is one of the pictures from, from that album. Anyway, this is where the, the story starts. In April 1911, Burgess was born in Devonport, the son of a naval officer, uh, and he's very much brought up by an absent father. And this is one of the characteristics of a lot of the Cambridge spies. Kim Philby's father, of course, was in Arabia. Uh, Blunt and McLean's fathers died when they were very young. Uh, and uh, Burgess was brought up, let's say, in this very strong female environment. Uh, and he was indeed very close to his mother, almost an edible relationship with his mother. And he had a younger brother called Nigel, who was two years younger. But um, really, the only person that seemed to matter in the house was uh, Guy Burgess to his mother. Uh, this is the father, Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm uh, had been at Dartmouth uh, and then spent most of his life, I say, serving abroad, uh, mainly on the Mediterranean station. Uh, he spent the First World War not as his son, young, elder son claimed, hunting U-boats in the uh, North Sea, but uh, maintaining uh, craft in Tyneside. It's a rather less exalted, but a, a clear indication of how Guy Burgess was already creating fantasies at a very early age. This is his mother, Eve, who came from a very prosperous background. Her father was a banker. Um, Lloyd's Bank actually bought the family bank. And uh, they lived in great wealth, uh, really all the way through her life. And Burgess was to survive really off uh, trust funds. Indeed, he even had trust funds sent to him in Moscow, much to the indignation of various MPs. After Devonport, they moved to West Mian, which is a village on the Portsmouth Road. Uh, and he lived here at this house called West Lodge. Uh, and was brought up by a governess. Um, his father, by this stage, was a commander in the Navy, but he had decided to take early retirement. His health wasn't very good, uh, and he realised he wasn't going to achieve flag rank. So this, this is him as a commander. This was a picture that actually was... Um, they had a portrait like this in, in the hall at home. Uh, as was traditional, Burgess was sent off to prep school at the age of nine. This school was called Lockers Park. It was probably the most fashionable and expensive prep school in Britain at the time. Uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten had just been there um, as a pupil. His contemporaries included people like uh, Tom Mitford, the brother of the Mitford sisters, uh, Lord Beatty's son, James Lees Milne. And what I rather like about Lockers Park uh, is that they divided all their houses into colours, 
Can you guess which colour house Burgess was in? <laughs> so even then he was a red. He was a very successful uh, schoolboy, uh, top of his class and everything. And actually what often people don't realise, he was extremely good at sport, particularly football. Uh, he only gave up sport when he was told at school that it was very bad for your health. Uh, and henceforth the only sport he did was, um, was swimming. Uh, he was too young to go on to Dartmouth when his time came to an end at Lockers Park, so he was sent to Eton for a few terms. And it was here that uh, a tragedy befell the family. According to Burgess, he was woken up, uh, this was the beginning of uh, September uh, 1924, he was woken by anguish cries from his parents' bedroom. He ran next door to find that his father had died in the course of making love to his mother, and the young boy of 13 was forced to separate the two inert bodies. Uh, and he said that was to shape both his attitude to his mother and indeed his own sexuality. Uh, it's a story his brother didn't know when I told it to him, uh, and so one wonders actually how true it is. It's certainly a story that Burgess told often um, uh, as an adult. You would think that in most households where your father has just died and you've got two children under 13, you would leave them in the school they are. But this is a slightly unusual household, and Burgess is sent on as he's supposed to do, and he goes on to Dartmouth a few weeks later. And so here he trades his, his, um, uh, his Eton uh, uniform for naval kit. Instead of learning Latin and Greek, he's, he's learning to, how to tie knots and to sail. Uh, it's a very, very different environment. It's a very harsh and disciplined environment. Everywhere they have to run, uh, they, are, um, they have parades, uh, and it's really not his scene. But he's extremely good at assimilating. This was a characteristic of his all the way through his life, and he adapts to his surroundings. Uh, indeed, so good is he at adapting that this is his term. Uh, he's, he's regarded as the, the leading light in that term, that he is the one who will go on and achieve flag rank. But Burgess doesn't stay to the end. He leaves very quickly and mysteriously in the summer of 1927. There are rumours of homosexuality or of stealing. But in fact, I think the reason that was given is the right reason, and that was his eyesight wasn't good enough to have a naval career. I think people also realised that he wasn't really suited to, to a naval uh, career, uh, and um, uh, the fact that Eaton was so happy to take him back, I think, probably means that that is the correct story. So here he is, back at Eton in 1927. You can see him pictured there. Um, he becomes very friendly with his housemaster, a man called Frank Dobbs, that you'll see just to the right of the cups there. Uh, and Frank Dobbs was to continue writing to him even when he was in Moscow. And I think I have to stress again just how conventional uh, Burgess was as, as a schoolboy. Um, here he is uh, as a, co a corporal in the OTC, which is not something you would expect of him. Uh, and here he is again playing in the first 11 at school. The only change, really, in his circumstances now is that his mother gets remarried. Burgess learns about this, not from her, but actually from his housemaster, which again says something about the slightly dysfunctional nature of the household. Um, the, ma the man that she marries is a rather interesting man called Jack Bassett, who's a retired army officer who'd served with Lawrence of Arabia in the Arab Bureau. He was an intelligence officer. Indeed, he had one of the first copies of, of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But he and Burgess do not get on very well. You can imagine Burgess feels that this man has come between him and his mum, uh, and uh, he calls him the colonel, and he does everything he can to irritate the colonel. And there's nothing you can do that irritates the colonel more than passing the port the wrong way. LAUGHTER Burgess uh, begins to specialise in history at Eton. Uh, he gets involved in the debating society and the, and the political society. He moves, I would say, slightly to the left under the influence of a, a t very inspirational teacher there who was later headmaster called uh, Robert Burley, known as Red Robert. Uh, 
uh, and you get a, a stronger sense of him identifying with the working class, but he's by no means a, a, a communist at this stage. But the one thing that he really wants at Eton is to be a member of POP. POP is the group of self-electing prefects at Eton uh, who have special privileges. Uh, and he tries eight times and three terms to be elected, <coughs> and he fails. And I think it's this that is, in a sense, one of the trigger points in the life where we begin to trace him becoming less the conventional schoolboy and more the outsider. And those of you who've seen Julian Mitchell's play Another Country may remember the character of Guy Bennett, which is based on Burgess, about how he begins to, to turn against the establishment because of various factors. So um, Burgess... Um, I think the interesting thing about biography is you can begin to, in a sense, show the making of a spy, and there are a whole series of these points throughout his life where he begins to, I suppose, pick up petty resentments and to turn against authority, and this is one of those moments. Having said that, I mean, he, most of the glittering prizes are there for him. He's, he's a house prefect, uh, and he's also one of the star leavers. Here he is on the 4th of June uh, in what's called Monarch, which is, the, which is a boat where all the most successful leavers uh, ride uh, uh, on the 4th of June. Uh, <coughs> from Eton, he wins a major open history scholarship to Trinity College, Cambridge. And for those of you who don't know Cambridge, Trinity is the, the largest of the Cambridge colleges. It's the old... Um, Sorry, it's, it's the, the largest. Um, it likes to, uh, it's certainly the richest, and it likes to think it's the grandest. They always claim that God had been a Trinity man. Um, and Burgess has pretty much the conventional life of an Eton schoolboy at Cambridge. He actually lives in Great Court here. Uh, he gets involved in acting. This is where he meets Michael Redgrave, who becomes a friend. Uh, he does a lot of punting. This is a, a boyfriend of his at the time, uh, who was another communist who later became a Conservative MP, um, as a lot of them did. Uh, and then these are some pictures of Burgess just in this first year at Cambridge, taken by quite a well-known photographer at the time called Lettuce Ramsey. So you can see a rather good-looking... He was seen as rather probably the most glamorous and brilliant of the undergraduates of, of, of his generation. <coughs> this, I think, sums him up beautifully. There he is, letting others do the work. I should say, at this particular time, he was fomenting a strike on behalf of the waiters at Trinity. But when I asked his brother what he was like with the servants at home, he said that no one could be ruder to the servants at home. So that's one of the sort of paradoxes of Burgess. Anyway, he ends the, his first year with the first in his prelims. Uh, he then goes on holiday. This is the island of Egg <coughs> on a reading party with his tutor, a man called Everett Utram. Egg is owned by Stephen Runciman, uh, his boyfriend, who is, of course, several years older. Uh, this is him on a punting expedition in June 1932. He's just got a first and part ones. And this is a boyfriend at the time called Jack Hunter, who was later quite a well-known scriptwriter in Hollywood and who was the illegitimate son of Douglas Fairbanks, the actor. And this is where, again, the story begins to change. Some of you may recognise some of these people. Anthony Blunt in the bottom left. This is probably the most famous secret society in the world, the Apostles. Uh, and the Apostles really was one of the societies in Cambridge that the communists tried to penetrate. And they did that for a very good reason. The Apostles were the intellectual elite of the university. Uh, it was self-elected. They tended to be the brightest and the best. And they also had uh, a different sense of loyalties. One of their members was E.M. Forster, who you may remember had that famous phrase that he hoped he had the courage to betray his friends before his country. Sorry, his country before his friends. Um, in fact, I, I, um, ironically, what Burgess managed to do was betray both, both country and friends. But they had a higher sense of loyalty. Uh, they didn't really have a strong sense of allegiance to society in general. And one of the reasons for that was many of them were gay at a time when homosexuality was criminalized. 
They didn't feel that society was going to recognise them as individuals because of their sexuality. They didn't feel any sense of allegiance to society. So the, I think the apostles, if you had another little trigger point in the life, is very important in shaping Burgess's attitude. It's also very important because it gives him an extremely useful network of contacts. Uh, he becomes very friendly throughout his life with people like Forster, uh, Maynard Keynes, uh, George Trevelyan, Jim Trevelyan, professor of history at Cambridge, writes his, uh, his, re- his referee when he leaves Cambridge, uh, and people like that. It also gives us very strong links to Bloomsbury. The man standing on the top left here is Julian Bell, who was killed in the Spanish Civil War, who was part, of course, of the Bloomsbury group. So Cambridge in the 30s had become much more politicised. There was a sense that the only way to combat fascism was uh, to unite in a popular front, uh, and that was to include the communists. The communists were the only ones who were standing up to, the, to, to, to Hitler. Uh, and Kim Philby, Donald MacLean, and uh, Guy Burgess become very active in the Cambridge University Social Society, which is the communist group. You can see a picture here of Donald MacLean on a march. He's the tall one under the R of war. And this is another, another famous moment in Cambridge history where, in a sense, the students begin to rise up and feel they need to do something. Now, Burgess was on this march. He didn't actually walk like everyone else. He went by car with Julian Bell. Um, and that rather sort of sums up uh, Burgess's attitude to things. He was always hedging his bets a bit. So that when the hunger marches came to Cambridge and, as a mark of solidarity, the undergraduates walked with him to London, Burgess caught the train and joined them in Hyde Park. He also took the precaution of wearing his old Etonian tie just in case he was stopped by the police. Kim Phil <coughs> had left Cambridge the year before, uh, well, had left Cambridge in 1929. Um, sorry, 1934 he left Cambridge. Uh, and he'd gone to work with the Communist Underground in Vienna. There he'd met and fallen in love with a woman called Litsy Friedman. Uh, and Litsy Friedman was a Soviet agent. And the Russians had decided on a new strategy of recruiting bright undergraduates or graduates in British universities uh, and sending them as sleepers into the civil service, the Foreign Office, the BBC, the Times, and activating them many years later. And Philby, of course, then is, is therefore the first of the Cambridge uh, ring. And he goes back to Cambridge with uh, asked to recruit other, 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 uh, other of his friends, and he goes back with a list of seven names. At the top of the list is Donald MacLean, bottom of the list is Guy Burgess. They have their reservations about Burgess because they feel he's a bit indiscreet to be a spy. Anyway, uh, MacLean is very happy to sign up to work for the Russians or to work for world peace. There was always some euphemism. Uh, <coughs> and Burgess actually gets to hear about this and work out what's going on. And so before Philby can even approach him, he badges him to let him join up. So you can't really say that he's recruited. You can say that he thrust himself upon the Russians. Um, here he is at the time he was recruited, the beginning of 1935. And again, one of the important factors here was that he was caught at a very vulnerable time. Up till then, his career had really been divided between his political activities and his uh, academic interests. He got a first at the end of his part ones, but he actually was, had a nervous breakdown at part twos. He was carried out of the exam and didn't receive a degree. Uh, despite that, Trinity kept him on uh, as a supervisor and, and allowed him to study for a PhD, but quite quickly discovered that someone else was doing the same subject. And in disgust, he abandoned the PhD. He'd rather lost any sense of you know, purpose and worth in life. And it was at this very vulnerable point that the Russians caught him and gave him some sort of purpose. So you can say he was a rebel without a cause who suddenly was given some sort of purpose at a time when he was rather lost. Here is Donald MacLean at the time he was recruited. He goes immediately into the Foreign Office. He's just got a first in modern languages. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is the fourth recruit, um, uh, a tutor at Trinity called Anthony Blunt. 
Burgess's role is, uh, is to be a talent spotter and recruiter, and the first of the people he recruits uh, is Blunt. This is Blunt on a trip to Russia uh, in about 1935-36. The second person that Burgess recruits is a man called John Cancross, often thought of as the fifth man, who just passed first into the Foreign Office uh, and was to become a very important spy, particularly at Bletchley. And this is the Oxford part of the ring, a man called Garomi Rees, who was a fellow of All Souls, uh, and Burgess was very friendly with him. He proved to be a ticking time bomb, because though he was recruited in 1937, he decided it wasn't for him and got out in 1939. Um, and he kept threatening to Burgess and to Blunt that he would expose them, that he would go to the authorities, to the point that Burgess at one point said to the Russians, shall I kill him? The fact that Gromi Reese was the father of his godchild didn't seem to worry him one little bit. <coughs> and it was Gromi Reese, of course, who in 1979 was the person who talked to Andrew Boyle, which led to the exposure of Anthony Blunt eventually, some 40 years later. The two theories about the Oxford Ring, one is that they were so brilliant that they were never caught, and the other that they were so bad, so useless, that they never went anywhere. So I'll let you choose which theory you want to believe. This is the American side of the, the ring, a man called Michael Strait, who was very close to the uh, Roosevelt family and went back to work in the State Department. And this is the man that they all knew as Otto. He was the principal recruiter, a man called Arnold Deutsch, Central European. He spoke about six languages. He had a doctorate in chemistry from Vienna University and was at London University doing postgraduate work. And he was helped by this man called Theodore Marley, Hungarian, who managed to be both a, a priest and a cavalry officer almost at the same time. Again, a very good linguist, a very sophisticated uh, man, <coughs> and they were the two uh, principal, in sense, handlers in these early years of the Cambridge Ring. The other important handler was this man called Yuri Moden, who worked with them after the war and who's only just died. Burgess came down from Cambridge, and he was tasked by the Russians to find out what was going on uh, with the far right, particularly uh, in the, uh, with um, uh, peace, peace overtures between the government and uh, Germany. Uh, and he went to work for this man called Jack McNamara, who was a boyfriend of his, Conservative MP for Chelmsford, who was very active in various things like the Anglo-German Club and the Anglo-German Fellowship. He also became very close, uh, indeed became the boyfriend of this man, Harold Nicholson, a man old enough to be his father, who was, uh, many of you will know, the husband of Vita Sackville West. And Nicholson was proved to be a very important mentor to him really throughout his career, to steer him and to protect him when things got a little bit hot, hot for him. Purchase eventually got into the BBC in the autumn of 1936, which was one of the targets of the Russians. They saw <coughs> the role as being rather important in terms of being an agent of influence and also in terms of networking. And that's exactly what happened to Burgess. He, he managed to meet a man called David Footman, who was working for MI6 and was recruited uh, to work for MI6 as a contract agent in 1937. And the reason he was recruited was for, because of this very attractive gentleman uh, <laughs> called Edward Pfeiffer. Uh, Edward Pfeiffer was a leading light in the French scouting movement and a well-known sadomasochist. But his great claim, his real claim to fame was that he was the secretary to Edward de Ladier, the French prime minister and minister for war. And so therefore a very useful conduit uh, in terms of picking up what was going on in discussions within the French cabinet. And Burgess went to work for these two men, Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister, and Neville's private spy chief, a man called Joseph Ball. Joseph Ball had been the man behind the Zinoviev letter. And when I talked to the Russians about Burgess's importance, the, one of the crucial moments they say in his career was this time just before the war when he was helping to shape policy um, 
uh, well, helping to pass back information about what was happening in terms of the peace, the peace bit of Germany. Burgess continued to work for MI6. He had a whole variety of jobs, and one of them was as, as a sort of uh, ideas man, and he came up with the idea of a training college for agents to send them in to do, to do sabotage. And this, of course, is the precursor of SOE. <coughs> and um, uh, in the summer of 1940, he was actually sent to be the training officer at this Guy Fawkes College, actually called Brickenbury, just outside Hartford. And he brought in his old pal, Kim Philby, who had been uh, a, a foreign correspondent for the Times. Uh, the, it's extraordinary just how the spies were able to penetrate intelligence very, very easily just on the strength of the all-boy network. Well, Burgess, I'm afraid, only lasted a few weeks at Brickenbury before he was thrown out for, in the terms uh, of one person mucking about with a corporal. Um, so that was the end of him. Philby, of course, as many of you know, went almost to the top of MI6. But Burgess was a great survivor, and he managed to get himself, within weeks, into MI5, working for this Trinity contemporary called Kimball Johnson. Kimball Johnson reported to Anthony Blunt, who had also just joined MI5. Uh, Blunt had applied, and on the same day he got two letters from Five, one saying, we know you're a communist at Cambridge and therefore we don't want you, and the other saying, when can you join? So, of course, he just threw one of them in the bin. Uh, and Burgess uh, operated as uh, Agent Vauxhall. He ran two agents for MI5. One was this man called Eric Kessler, one of his lovers, also a Russian spy, who reported on this, um, the neutrals and things like peace negotiations um, the Rudolf Hess um, visit, all those sort of things. And the other was this man called André Rivet, who was a Hungarian journalist who reported all the exile movements in London. And Rivet, after the war, was to be quite a well-known gallery owner and a great champion of Graham Sutherland. Now we come on to the good guys. This is a chap called Guy Little, one of the victims of the story. Guy Little was the deputy director of MI5 and became very close to Burgess in these war years because his wife had left him uh, for someone else at the beginning of the war, taking his family with him. He was extremely lonely, and he would spend every Monday night with Burgess going to the music hall. And, he, of course, they would gossip and talk about things. And so a lot of a very uh, useful information, which Little really shouldn't have passed on, uh, was passed on to Burgess. Burgess was extremely charming and very adept at getting information out of people. Uh, the other person he worked closely with was a man called Dick White, who has the distinction of being the only person to be both head of MI5 and MI6. And it was Dick White some 15 years later, uh, in fact less than that, a dozen years later, who would be investigating him uh, after he fled. And the other member of MI5 that he saw a lot of at this time was Victor Rothschild. Victor Rothschild had been in the Apostles with him, he'd been at Trinity, and Burgess and Blunt had actually rented a flat off him during the war. Uh, and what um, wasn't known is that Burgess had something on Rothschild. Rothschild at Cambridge had killed a man in a car accident, driving too fast from Cambridge to London. The whole thing, he'd been put on trial, it had all been hushed up, he'd actually got off the case. He, he married actually the daughter of the man who got him off. Uh, and um, I think there's some big questions about Rothschild's role in, in the whole Cambridge spy ring. There's some suggestion that his wife, Tess, was involved and that he was covering for her. Uh, it's certainly true that when the files were released last year here, that the interview with Victor Rothschild was conspicuously missing from the releases. Uh, and, uh, of course, it was Rothschild who was the man who paid Peter Wright to, to, to write Spycatcher, a book that uh, has uh, hardly any reference to Rothschild in it. We now come on to Burgess's rather extravagant love life. This was the man he was living with at the beginning of the war, a man called James Pope Hennessy. 
Uh, and Jabe's propensity was very close to this woman called Clarissa Churchill, still alive, aged 95. Uh, she was the niece of Winston Churchill, and Burgess had been told by the Russians to get close to her. They thought that she must know some state secrets. Uh, she later married Anthony Eden. And when I interviewed Clarissa Churchill, she claimed that she hardly met Burgess and that uh, he didn't like her. Um, I knew that wasn't the case because I had about a dozen people saying that they were engaged. Uh, and though uh, Burgess did have a habit of getting engaged to people without telling them, um, uh, this was not one of those cases. So I was very pleased again to see when the archives were released last year that they confirmed that Burgess uh, and she were engaged. This was another of his female friends at the time, a woman called Rosamund Lehman, quite a well novelist in her day. She was the girlfriend of Gromby Rees. Uh, and Burgess saw a lot of her. He used to go and visit her at her house outside Oxford until he tried to seduce her gardener. Uh, and that was the end of a beautiful friendship because she argued it was a lot harder to get gardeners than to keep friends. <laughs> uh, Burgess continued working for MI5 through the war and also uh, ran something called the Week in Westminster, which was a political program which gave him incredible contacts with both politicians and journalists. And one of the people he met was a journalist called Hector McNeil, who at the end of the war was made Minister of State in the Foreign Office, so number two to Bevan. And here you have um, Hector McNeil just sitting to the left of Bevan, signing, sitting and signing a document there. And Hector McNeil decided that he didn't really want to, uh, this was part of course the new Labour government, he didn't want to have stuffy old Foreign Office private secretary, he wanted to have his old mucker, Guy Burgess. Uh, and so Burgess suddenly found himself at the beginning of the post-war period in the inner sanctums of the Foreign Office. Uh, he would see everything, the CS telegrams from MI6, chief defence staff minutes, the cabinet minutes, everything crossed his desk. Uh, and the Russians really couldn't believe their luck. And Burgess, being very conscientious, said that he was very happy to work late, he was very happy to work weekends, he was very happy to take documents home, which is what he did, about 5,000 of them. Um, one of the ironies uh, we discovered when the uh, files were opened in the 1980s in Moscow is that the Russians couldn't believe that he was genuine, that he, someone could have access to this material. And actually they ignored much of the material. Much of it wasn't even translated. So he'd been wasting his time. <coughs> but what's certainly true is that the Russians often knew the positioning, the, 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 the British position on something in, in negotiations before the British team themselves did. Burgess would tip off his controller, they would, he would bring out documents that night, and they would be, the, the negotiating team would be briefed uh, by the following morning. This is a, uh, a cartoon that Burgess drew. He was an extremely good artist. Uh, this is actually in Cabinet Minutes. I don't know if you can read it. It says, Hector needs me. And this is during the Berlin air crisis where uh, Burgess is sent down to the Solent to summon Hector McNeil back for a cabinet minute, um, um, meeting. But you can see that even at these very important crises, like the Berlin airlift, Burgess is right at the centre of power. This is a slight digression, just to give a sense of the wealth of the family. This is Burgess's mother's home near Newbury in, during the war. It had 17 acres, an ornamental lake, a cottage, um, uh, um, numerous staff. So you can see that Burgess came from a very, very privileged background. Burgess's career now was in the Foreign Office. He'd first of all been seconded to a new department called the Information Research Department, which job was to combat propaganda from the Soviet Union. Uh, he immediately betrayed it to the Russians within weeks of it being set up. Uh, uh, he then moved to work in the Far East Department, where he was very influential in shaping British policy towards recognizing Red China at a time, of course, when America didn't. Uh, and he became really the foreign office expert on communism. 
Indeed, one of his star turns was to his lecture on the evils of communism at the Foreign Office Summer School each year. As part of his, uh, I suppose, the broadening of his experience, it was decided that he should be sent uh, abroad, uh, and he was sent to uh, to the uh, Far East desk uh, in the embassy in Washington. And here he was reunited with his old friend, Kim Philby, who by this stage was the head of the MI6 station in Washington and the CIA liaison officer. Uh, and Burgess goes to live with Philby in this house. Philby has the, 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 the middle part of the house. Uh, he, Philby installs his mistress and his secretary, Esther Whitfield, in the attic up there. And he puts Guy Burgess in the basement. Here he is at the back. And the reason he has Burgess in the house, partly is to keep an eye on him, but also because they are now run not from Washington by the Russians, but from New York, and they need a courier. And Burgess, as a more low-level diplomat, is able to travel more easily, uh, and he becomes, uh, in a sense, the point man for Philby. Here's a picture of Esther Whitfield, uh, until now a totally unknown character in the story, and I think a rather intriguing one, because not only did she have an affair with Kim Philby, but she also had an affair with Guy Burgess. He had actually proposed marriage to her in May 1951. He didn't actually stick around to, uh, to get her answer. But they remained very friendly, and even from Moscow he wrote to her, uh, and indeed it was to her that he sent his last will and testament, uh, and she was one of the four beneficiaries of his will, the others being uh, Philby Blunt and his boyfriend in Moscow called Tolia. Paul Dester Whitfield was completely innocent of, of any charge of espionage, but she was suspected of having tipped off uh, the Cambridge spies. She was sacked in, in the summer of 1951 and she never really recovered. She never really had a proper job after that uh, and she never uh, um, indeed had any sort of relationship after that as far as I can gather. This is a man I name in the book as a spy, one of the few Russian spies not to have gone to Cambridge, uh, a man called Wilfred Mann and he was originally named in Andrew Boyle's book, uh, the book that of course exposed uh, Blunt. And at the time, no one actually took that very seriously. He threatened to sue Andrew Boyle, though he didn't, and the whole thing went very quiet. And it was only by chance uh, that I saw in the private, an unpublished memoir of a senior diplomat the whole story of Wilfred Mann. He'd actually been a spy caught, recruited by the Russians in the 1930s. He'd then been turned and played back against the Russians in return for American citizenship. So that's our atomic energy spy, Wilfred Mann. And this is where it all begins to go pear-shaped for Paul Burgess. Uh, he's uh, beginning to drink quite heavily by this stage. Defectors are appearing, Russian defectors are appearing, saying that there's a spy in the Foreign Office who went to Eton. Since most of the people in the Foreign Office had gone to Eton, that didn't really limit things much. Uh, but he knew that the days were slightly limited. Um, there were also, he knew uh, through Philby, uh, deciphering the Venona, um, Venona codes. And it was only a matter of time, really, before they identified the Cambridge Ring. And he was drinking heavily. He was taking drugs, drugs from a friend of his who was a, who, they were prescribed by a friend of his who was a vet who specialised in horses, so he didn't always get the dosage right. Uh, and Burgess, uh, in fact, had a couple of near misses. He, he um, was reprimanded or disciplined by the Foreign Office uh, in 1949 for being indiscreet. He was drunk and, uh, and giving away the names of spies when he was on holiday in Tangier. Uh, the disciplinary committee came down 5-4 in his favour, but it could have gone easily the other way. Uh, there were lots of people making complaints about him in the Foreign Office, not for a spy, but just for his general untidiness and, and, and um, yeah, sloppiness, really. Anyway, he's um, not very popular in the embassy in Washington. He gets moved across to the Middle Eastern Department and eventually finds a very uh, convivial berth as, the, uh, as um, 
Uh, his job ostensibly is to report on American public opinion, which requires him to sit in bars all day talking to, to people. And one of his jobs is to go and talk to groups outside uh, Washington, and he's asked to speak to a military academy in South Carolina. And he decides that he'll drive there in his Lincoln convertible. This is it here. He loved cars. His great ambition was to have been the motoring correspondent of country life. So history would have been very different if he'd pursued that particular aim. Uh, and he has been given uh, three pieces of advice when he goes to Washington, not to get involved in the colour question, not to get involved with homosexuals, and not to get involved with communists. Of course, this is the time of McCarthy. And so he rather flippantly said, well, I shouldn't make a pass at Paul Robeson then. <laughs> well, what he does on this day in February 1950, when he drives down to Virginia, is he picks up a hitchhiker, a black, gay, homosexual hitchhiker. Uh, and they get caught speeding three times in the same day in the same state. Uh, the first time, he tries to proposition the Burley patrolman. Uh, the second time, caught uh, at 40 miles an hour in a 20-mile limit, he says, that's ridiculous, I was doing at least 65 uh, and the third time, he, uh, claim, uh, he says he's going to report the patrolman to the um, governor. Well, the patrolman gets there first, uh, and when the ambassador gets to hear about it, he's furious and Burgess is recalled. But the timing on this is extremely fortuitous, because in April 1951, the Venona decrypt finally reveals the existence of a spy in the British embassy in 1944 called Homer. And Homer is quickly identified as Donald MacLean. Uh, um, Donald McLean by this stage is head of the American department, Burgess's boss uh, and the first person to be told of all this is Kim Philby as the CIA liaison officer so Philby tells Burgess that when he goes back he should report to his old mate McLean and they should set him to plan the exfiltration, the escape so that's what, exactly what they do, Burgess returns McLean at, at this stage of course is under surveillance it's very difficult for the Russians to get close to him uh, Russians are not allowed to leave London and again themselves under surveillance so they need, but McLean needs someone to escort him out. Uh, and the third person they think is most suitable is, is Burgess. Whether Burgess uh, was meant to go all the way to Moscow is, is a debate. Whether he was tricked into going the whole way or whether he knew he was going uh, is a moot point, and it's something I discuss in the book. The, uh, they, they know that there's some suggestion that... Um, the spies had another spy reporting to them because they were aware that McLean would be brought in for questioning uh, probably on Monday the 28th of May. So on Friday the 25th of May, 1951, almost 65 years ago, Burgess uh, drives down to this house outside Rutum in Kent where McLean is living. He picked, they have dinner. It's McLean's 38th birthday. His wife is about to give birth to their third child. He's a bit of a wreck. He doesn't want to go. Uh, and Burgess then drives him to Southampton and they catch uh, a, a boat across to St. Malo. <coughs> a boat that was generally used by adulterous businessmen because it, you weren't required to use your passport. Uh, and they then disappear really into the crowds of St. Malo. They catch a train to Paris and they vanish really for the next five years. Uh, this is the man left behind, Jack Hewitt, Burgess's boyfriend at the time, who almost simultaneously conducted affairs with both Christopher Isherwood and Anthony Blunt. You can see it's a very close little group of people. Uh, this is just a, a, an indication of Burgess's decor in his flat in New Bond Street. He was very patriotic. He loved decorating his flats in red, white, and blue. Um, uh, and this is the, uh, the notice uh, for, when they, uh, for the missing diplomats. I love the description of Burgess as being slightly pigeon-toed. You'll see it's the, it's the bottom line. One of the intriguing things about the escape is that we know that, or I, I say in the book, that the authorities knew on the Friday night they'd gone. 
A man called Russell Lee, who worked for MI5, uh, took a call at Leckenfield House, the MI5 headquarters, from a duty officer in Southampton saying that McLean had gone. And Dick White, you may have seen the picture of, uh, decided that he would go after them and then found that his passport was out of date and he couldn't travel. Uh, so uh, such things, thing, you know, that's how history hinges on these, these moments. Uh, but for some reason, the British authorities didn't alert the French authorities. I think they thought they, they were going to try and keep this under, under wraps. There's some suggestion maybe they let them escape, which is what I think they did with people like Philby. Because the extraordinary thing is that though they knew on the Friday, and they certainly knew on the Saturday, because I talked to a woman called Jane Williams, who's the mother of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and she said she was working for Churchill that afternoon at Chartwell, and she took a call from the Foreign Office saying that the, the, the men had gone. Um, so the sensible story is that the authorities learnt on the following Monday when McLean didn't come into work that they'd gone. But yet they still didn't do anything. And this notice was only sent out on the 7th of June when the story broke, broke in the press. So this is the poor bemused German guard who's been sent out to look for them two weeks after they've reached Moscow. This is the water diviner brought in to work out where they've gone. He said, he said they were south of Paris. Um, there's a lovely fire actually here at the National Archives. I don't know if, what, what's been put out for you, but um, of, of um, people reporting sightings of Burgess and McLean. You know, they've been seen at Gunnersbury stuck in a train or for half an hour, whatever it is. Uh, and my favourite is the woman who, who writes in to say, I know exactly where they are, they're underneath my floorboards and they're beginning to smell. <laughs> um, this is a Percy Sillitoe, the head of MI5, who's been sent out to explain to the Americans quite why so many secrets are hemorrhaging from the British. And indeed, I think one of the real consequences of the, the defection uh, was this, um, uh, the jeopardising of Anglo-American cooperation, particularly on nuclear secrets. The other was it really shook faith in the British establishment. There had been a sense that the establishment had protected their own and indeed were not even telling the truth after they fled, uh, and I would argue still not telling the truth. Uh, and indeed, the, the white paper that came out on the disappearance was called the Whitewash Paper, and in the Times editorial, uh, and indeed in a Spectator article, they coined the phrase the establishment, the establishment covering up for itself. And the story really goes quiet for about five years, until in February 1956, Khrushchev is due to come to Britain on a state visit. They, just need, they decide they're going to clear the air, and the two missing diplomats are paraded at a press conference. And gradually, the picture begins to emerge of what happened. Uh, after arrival in Moscow, they'd been sent to a close city called Kubashev, where they'd been um, uh, debriefed and, and kept, really. They were frightened that uh, people might come after them. And it was only really in about 1955 that they came to Moscow. Um, Burgess uh, was given a job working for a publishing house, introducing writers, but his main job was advising the Russian Foreign Ministry on personalities and politics uh, of the British Foreign Office. Uh, and... Uh, when, when the whole thing became public in 1956, an old friend of Burgess called Tom Dryberg came out to, to see him and asked if he could write his, his biography. So that was the first biography of Burgess. Burgess was given a dacha. This is his uh, dog called Joe, after Stalin. Uh, he was given a block of flats here uh, overlooking the Novodichi Monastery. And he used to spend a lot of time in the monastery. And I initially thought that having been agnostic all his life, he had sort of found some form of religion in later life. It was only when the files were released last year I discovered that the reason he went to the monastery was he'd fallen in love with a six-foot Russian priest. Um, Burgess knew that the British had no evidence in which to put him on trial, and this was something that really he, he loved baiting the British authorities with. Uh, and he was always threatening to come home, uh, that he could come home, 
uh, and they were absolutely petrified that he would do so. There was nothing they could do if he did come back. Uh, eventually, they persuaded Anthony Blunt, not realizing his his full role in the whole story, to write to his old friend and to dissuade him from coming back, which rather suited Anthony Blunt's purposes as well. Uh, Burgess uh, had his books and furniture sent out to him. I mean, those of you who know the the, the uh, Alan Bennett playing English and Abroad will know that the story with Coral Brown, which is very, very accurate. Indeed, all, all sorts of people were sent back to buy clothes for him. And there's one daily record journalist who was sent to buy Auditonian ties in German Street. Uh, and he felt rather embarrassed by this. And he said to the uh, shop assistant, these are not for me. These, these are not for me. And the shop assistant said, that's what they all say, sir. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he played music. He hung around uh, um, around the uh, lobbies of Western hotels, very, very lonely, very keen to meet Westerners. His old mum, here she is, came out to see him. Uh, this is them on holiday in Sochi. Uh, and others like Graham Greene, uh, Stephen Spender, Jan Morris. Uh, this is a woman called Mary Fedden, quite a well-known uh, artist, came out to see him. Uh, he spent quite a lot of time uh, on holiday in the Black Sea. He was given a boyfriend called Tolia, who really, whose main role was to report on him. He was a KGB plant, uh, and he really, basically, drank himself to death. This is him here uh, at the in his early fifties, uh, and this is his funeral. He died at the age of fifty-two in August nineteen sixty-three. This is his brother Nigel in the middle with the glasses, who came out to the funeral. Uh, Nigel had uh, followed uh, his older brother through Locker's Park, Eton, and Trinity, but he'd gone into advertising. And those of you who remember the PG Tips ads with all those chimps, that is Nigel Burgess's contribution to British culture. So slightly different to his brother. Uh, Nigel told me a good story that when he went to the funeral and he went to Thomas Cook to buy his ticket, uh, the woman, who clearly recognized the name because it had made front-page news around the world, paused for a moment, and she said to him, Burgess, will that be a single, sir, or a return? LAUGHTER uh, uh, um, and this is the funeral. This is Nigel with Melinda McLean uh, and uh, Natalia, uh, Burgess's housekeeper, and Donald McLean. Burgess really had very little to do with McLean uh, uh, in Moscow. I mean, that's a great irony. They're always linked together. They had a so-called roaring affair at Cambridge. They then had nothing really to do with each other until 1951. They were then thrown together in Kubachev for a few years. Melinda had come out to join her husband in 1953. Um, but when Burgess died, he left nothing to McLean. Uh, most of his stuff had got went to Philby, who by this stage was in Moscow. You may remember he'd come across in January 1963. And so uh, Philby got this wingback uh, armchair. He got a lot of Burgess's clothes because they were the same size. And he got a lot of Burgess's books. So he was discovered that many of them were not Burgess's books but belonged to various libraries around. Uh, Nigel returned to Britain with uh, his brother's ashes. And in October 1963, they were buried under uh, cover of darkness in the family plot at West Mian. And then two months later, Burgess's mother uh, also died, and she was uh, buried in this plot as well. So that's the story of Stalin's Englishman. And I suppose the two questions is how much damage did he do, and why did he do it? Uh, and they're both very difficult questions to answer. Uh, I think... Uh, Certainly talking to the Russians, and I started off writing this book really much as, as the first, first proper biography of Burgess, and because I was interested by his hinterland, the fact that he mixed with all these actors and writers, you know, people like George Orwell and Frederick Ashton and Lucian Freud and, and others. 
but talking to the Russians, the thing they told me was he was the most important in their eyes of the Cambridge spies. He was the moral leader. He was the one who kept it together. Um, uh, he was the point man, really, for it all. And he was the first, of course, to penetrate British intelligence, the fir- only one to be a member of both five and six. He was crucial in this moment before the Second World War, but also clearly just after the war in the Foreign Office. Uh, and then he worked uh, very importantly as an agent of influence, uh, both in the Far East Department and when he was back in Moscow. So though people like McLean had atomic secrets, those secrets were not actually very important. The scientists knew the secrets, the politicians, the, the diplomats didn't. And though uh, Philby might betray intelligence operations, uh, and you could quite obviously see agents who died as a result of that, Burgess worked on a much bigger scale, an almost strategic scale. So, for example, information he gave on the Korean War may well have led to the deaths of thousands of American troops. Uh, and so that was the surprise of the book. And why he did he do it? Well, I think you can't dis- uh, dismiss the political element. He was a communist. He always claimed that he preferred British communists to Russian communists. Uh, he had his own version of communism. But he did feel that the future lay between two power blocks, Britain, sorry, America and Russia, and that he would put his money on Russia. But I think my own instinct is that it was the personal element which was the most important because there were clearly plenty of people who supported Stalin either covertly or overtly who then dropped out as the years passed. And the, the Cambridge gang could have had no illusions really about the totalitarian regime that they were supporting. And I think it is a sense of being the outsider. He used to often say, uh, if you don't belong, uh, you, you, you will betray uh, he felt a resentment against the establishment. He enjoyed Ipeti le bourgeoisie. He enjoyed riding with the hairs on the hands. Uh, and I think it was this sense of uh, this thrill, this, 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 this kick he got from being the sort of naughty boy still as an adult that, that drove him on. So that's probably a good place to stop and, and, and take some questions. But thank you for coming. podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.